from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up today's show, hibernation and solar cells. In addition, we're joined by Dr. Francis Collins, who will discuss science and faith. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty sleepy. And actually, I can't even tell what time it is anymore. <laughs> well, that's because your natural clock has been disrupted. It's been stopped. Oh, really? How did that happen? By being frozen, I guess. Or... <laughs> Much like Han Solo. In Carbonite. <laughs> but, you know, this has actually been a very interesting question, though. What happens when the animals hibernate? Do their clocks turn off or not? Mm-hmm. And the latest research suggests that they actually do turn off. And how does that happen? In these animals, they have the clock genes, PER1, PER2, and BML1. Normally, they have this on and off cycle, which goes on and off predictably over a 24-hour cycle. What these researchers from France have shown is that in hibernating animals, these genes stop oscillating. And so either they're in a constantly on or off state. It's like a natural clock pacemaker thing. Right, and it stops when you... Pretty interesting, because now they'll be able to distinguish between the physiological and chemical changes that underlie hibernation. Oh, wow. And this might be useful for sleep disorder diseases, do you think? Possibly, or people who fly around all the time. <laughs> right. Reset your clock. Yeah. I want to be 10 years younger. <laughs> well, I, I want to be Brad Pitt, but that's not going to happen, I don't think. <laughs> this is actually uh, from our very favorite journal again. Wow. This journal is so amazing, it has all the best stuff in it. The Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. Penis. Not related to that at all, in fact, but it has to do with the sun. Does it have a cycle? (laughs) It does. It comes up every day, and if it's lucky, it goes down at night. (laughs) So far, so good. (laughs) Researchers are trying to, of course, harvest the power of the sun in solar cells. But part of the problem is the efficiency of these solar cells is really bad. Now, new research done by Supriya Pillai of the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, has improved the method of depositing silicon on wafers involved in solar energy collection. Okay. They're taking the process of etching out of the whole manufacturing process, okay. which apparently reduces the efficiency. Right. And instead, what they've done is they've deposited a thin film and baked it, which caused these little bubble islands, which wind up being much more efficient at light gathering. And apparently, this improves the efficiency from about 8 to 10 percent to nearly between 13 and 15 percent, which makes it very commercially viable. Almost there. Almost there, yeah. So it's made of silicon, right? Yes. Traditional material that's been almost all solar cells. Right, right. But uh, how they're deposited, the thickness right. and such, it's not really as efficient as it could be. Okay, so it must be that morphology, right. surface structure. Surface structure, exactly change the method and improve the efficiency. Cool. Journal of Applied Physics is where you can find this. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Francis Collins will join us to discuss science and faith. So stay tuned.
back to the Grox Science Show. Well, science and religious faith occupy two separate modes of human inquiry. Science investigates the natural world through rigorous empirical investigations that are readily reproducible and explainable based on physical laws. On the other hand, religious faith rests on separate footing, requiring the believer to accept the articles of faith without the benefit of solid evidence as backing. While it may be possible to be religious and not scientific, is the opposite possible? Can scientists reconcile a religious worldview with a scientific one? Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Francis Collins. Dr. Collins is the famed principal investigator and director of the Human Genome Project at the National Human Genome Research Institute, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. He received his Ph.D. from Yale and his M.D. from the University of North Carolina and was previously a professor of internal medicine at the University of Michigan, where he began his work on positional cloning of genes before taking his position at NIH. His new book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief, attempts to explore the often tenuous ground between science and religion. Dr. Collins, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. It's a pleasure to join you today from way over here in Bethesda, Maryland. Well, it is certainly our pleasure, and this is certainly a very fascinating book, one that covers ground not normally visited by scientists. In the book, you mentioned that you were initially atheistic but became more religious in part through your scientific investigations. Can you discuss how that shift in your thinking occurred? Sure. So I did not grow up in a home where faith was considered very important. I had a wonderful upbringing by free-spirited parents. I was homeschooled till the sixth grade at a time where nobody was doing homeschooling. And then I fell in love with science as a high school student and majored in chemistry and went off to do a Ph.D. in physical chemistry, by which time I had become a pretty obnoxious atheist who had no real use for anybody who wanted to talk about faith. In my view, it was all explained by the laws of science. Then I changed my direction and decided to go to medical school because I got more interested in what science might be able to teach us about humans and what we could do with that information to help cure disease. And suddenly my atheism began to seem rather thin. Uh, When I was faced with people who were suffering from terrible diseases and many of them facing the end of their lives, I couldn't help but notice how their faith seemed to be such a strong rock of support for them. And while I assumed that was a psychological crutch, it still made me curious and I realized I'd never really looked at the evidence. And as a scientist, you know, you're not supposed to draw a conclusion without looking at evidence. And so I figured, okay, I better strengthen my atheism here so I don't feel uncomfortable about it. And I began to explore both from a perspective of nature, are there, are there pointers to God in nature, and also from more of a theological perspective, are there arguments that says belief in God is actually intellectually supported? I assumed it was all kind of an emotional thing. To my amazement, I discovered a lot of fairly compelling arguments from both of those views. From nature, of course, the fact that there's something instead of nothing, the fact that the universe exists and had a beginning, seems to cry out for something to have started all of this. It had to be outside of nature. The fact that the universe is so finely tuned to make complexity and life possible, really an amazing set of remarkable coincidences in terms of how the constants that determine the behavior of matter have been set. And then I look at human beings, and from a more philosophical and theological perspective, I became fascinated with this argument about the moral law, the fact that humans have this sense of right and wrong, that we're called to do the right thing. We often break that law, but we know it's there. 
it doesn't make a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective that this should be such a strong motivator because sometimes it asks us to do things that are sacrificial and potentially destructive to our own abilities to reproduce, which is all that evolution cares about. And so I realized atheism actually is the least rational of all the choices. Agnosticism is defensible, but seems a bit like a cop-out. And ultimately, I decided, you know, God's pretty plausible. That required then, of course, a real exploration of, okay, plausible is one thing, but what would God be like? And the world religions have a lot to say about that. And I discovered there was a lot there I resonated with. And after a couple of years of really battling against the conclusion, I decided that for my purposes, the truth was to be found in the existence of God and in a particular type of that belief, namely Christianity, spoke to me in ways that I totally did not expect. And I became a believer at age 27. Well, this is certainly an unconventional position for a scientist to take. Indeed, many scientists might ask why we should propose the existence of a God at all. Doesn't science provide more plausible explanations for the moral law or even the fine-tuning of the universe? In the book I wrote called The Language of God, I kind of go through those counter-arguments, and people can make up their own mind which of these seem more plausible. You know Occam's razor, which says if you're faced with a couple of possible explanations for a phenomenon, you should choose the one that seems the simplest, and you'll probably be right. Mm -hmm. So the existence, for instance, of the fine-tuning of the universe, the, the likelihood that the gravitational constant and the strong and weak nuclear forces and the speed of light and all of these other constants would just happen to have the values that they do, which make it possible for matter to have coalesced and life to exist, is astronomically low. It's like 10 to the minus several hundred. So I don't think one can simply say that's a coincidence. You're either forced to say there is an intelligence behind this, or you have to adopt the multiverse view, which says there's actually an infinite number of other universes that we can never observe that have different values of these constants, and by necessity we have to exist in the one where life is possible or we wouldn't be here. So which of those requires a greater leap of faith? I find that the multiverse hypothesis is a pretty incredible one to be able to get your mind around, and it doesn't seem all that appealing. And perhaps the idea of an intelligent designer makes a lot more sense as a simple explanation. Similarly with the moral law, and again, don't get me wrong, my faith does not rest upon these arguments as proofs. They're not proofs. They're signposts. They're interesting arguments. They help you open your mind if it's been closed previously, as mine was. Certainly you can say that evolution might have placed some pressures on human beings to behave in moral ways that that might have been good for their ability to attract mates and reproduce, but it falls apart in certain really dramatic examples of human noble acts where somebody sacrifices their own life to help somebody they don't even know, sort of the Oscar Schindlers and the Mother Teresas. Uh, that makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective. It's a complete scandal uh, to evolutionary dynamics, and yet it is the kind of human action that we most admire. We most think that that is what we are called to do. So where does that come from? And again, that seems like a signpost to something outside of us, outside of nature, something holy and good, something that wants to have a relationship with us and has implanted this sense of the moral law in our hearts as a signpost towards himself. But on the flip side of those remarkable acts of humanity, there's the problem of evil. Why would the designing God create evil in the world? 
And that's a tough problem, probably the toughest problem for a believer to struggle with. Why would a loving God allow evil, allow suffering? There is, of course, the free will defense, uh, which is that basically God decided to give humans free will. If you try to imagine a circumstance where that was not the case, it would be a pretty uninteresting and pointless uh, world that we would live in. And, of course, we humans use that free will to hurt each other in remarkable, awful ways, and we could hardly blame God for our free will choices to do evil things. It doesn't fully, though, answer the question. What do you do about earthquakes? What do you do about a child with cancer? Where it's not clear that any specific human action caused that to occur. And in that context, I think one has to both consider that the way in which the world was created created that very possibility of tectonic plates slipping and DNA mistakes occurring, and you can't have one without the other. But you also have to contemplate that maybe God's purposes are not served by a world with no suffering, no challenges, no strife at all. In my own life, I know I've learned the most about myself and about God at the tough times, not at the easy times. And if God's intention is to help me learn about myself and about Him, then maybe a world where everybody has a good time all day is not the way to get there. Is there a particular reason why the Christian faith in particular appeals to you? I didn't expect that would be the answer, and I almost hoped it wouldn't because people would say, well, of course, you know, he's an American and he's surrounded by everybody else who has that faith perspective. But after surveying the options, uh, the person of Jesus Christ uh, came uh, out of all of this exploration as truly unique, as somebody who claimed not only to know about God, but to be God, and a person for which the historical evidence is remarkably good. Even atheist uh, scholars will say, we have very strong evidence that Jesus Christ was a real person who really walked the earth and who said most of the things that are written down about him, although people argue about some of the details. So it seemed to me I'd considered that was sort of a myth. No, this is a real historical figure. And the things that he taught and the way in which he gave his life uh, for all of us ultimately convinced me that this was a person that I wished to put my trust in. So you're walking a fine line between science and religion. How have your views been received by both scientists and theologians? I would say most scientists have been a little puzzled but respectful, and certainly a significant number of scientists have sent me notes of appreciation that this perspective is being voiced. After all, 40% of scientists are in fact believers. That's a well-kept secret. Theologians, likewise, I think many of those who have been greatly troubled about the growing battle between science and faith have been delighted to see somebody coming from a science perspective and putting forward the hypothesis that belief in God is still entirely compatible with everything we've learned about nature. Uh, certainly some theologians who take a more conservative or even fundamentalist view are perhaps troubled by the fact that in the book I argue quite strongly that evolution is true, that there's no real doubt anymore from the evidence that we've learned, particularly from studying DNA, that we are all descended from a common ancestor and that that includes human beings. But why is that such a problem? Unless you want to be an ultra-literal interpreter of Genesis 1 and 2, it seems to me that evolution as God's method of creation is entirely consistent with everything else I know about God's plan for you and me.
Well, Richard Dawkins has recently been very vocal about the opposite point of view, that religion has been the source of many of the world's problems, and that holding religious views makes one more closed-minded. Do you think that this is the case, and is it possible to be a good scientist who holds religious views? Uh, absolutely. And again, I think Dawkins, with whom I debated in Time magazine back in November, and I think that's still up on the web, uh, where this uh, argument uh, played out between the two of us, uh, Dawkins takes a perspective of faith that I would see as sort of a caricature of the real thing. He describes the kind of faith that I don't recognize. It seems to me that atheism, on the other hand, has certainly been capable of at least as much evil, if not more, uh, than religion, and that's conveniently swept under the rug. After all, the most horrendous uh, treatment of human beings in the 20th century came at the hand of atheist regimes, namely Stalin in Russia and Mao in China, and it was hardly something that could be blamed on an overblown faith. So when you set back from the, the diatribes, some of which are really quite shrill, uh, coming from the atheist perspective, and ask yourself the question, is there really a conflict here between these worldviews? I don't think there is. Basically, science looks at the natural world, but that's all it can do. If you're interested in questions that go beyond that, like, is there a God? And what's the meaning of my life? And what happens after I die? Uh, science isn't going to help you. So either you decide those questions are off the table and you're not going to consider them, which is sort of an impoverished way to live your life, or you have to find spiritual answers. And that, for me, has been very satisfying be able to do both of those things on any given Thursday and to find that they're actually quite compatible. Well, we are running slightly out of time, but to close, religion is often a taboo issue in science. Do you have any particular perspective regarding existing in the scientific culture yet maintaining a religious belief? It is a taboo to talk about faith in scientific circles. That'll empty out the seminar room about as quickly as anything I know. And there's reason for that. Science is about exploring nature, and we should keep in mind that those are the tools we use and that those are the arguments that we bring to bear on whether something is right or wrong. At the same time, I don't think that scientists need to completely keep it a secret if they also have a religious perspective. And I'm hopeful that maybe scientists could find opportunities to do that, not in a way that is proselytizing and not in a way that is threatening to those who don't share those views. But I don't know that it's necessary that we remain completely silent in this regard. There's a lot to be learned by putting these worldviews together, and in a certain way, we're missing out if we don't occasionally bring that up. Well, there's certainly room for a lot of discussion there. Dr. Collins, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show and talking about your book, The Language of God. It was a pleasure to chat with you today. And you were just listening to Dr. Francis Collins, director of the Human Genome Project, discussing his new book, The Language of God, A Scientist Presents Evidence for Belief. This is the Grok Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Let me tell you something, children, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, yeah, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, I let it shine, let it shine to show my love I want to tell you that everywhere I go I'm gonna let it shine 
Welcome back to Berkeley Crocs, and now here's the Highlander with the answer to last week's question of the week. Greetings, Highlander. You're trying to measure the activity in your brain. Electrical is good, but you can also measure the magnetic fields using magnetoencephalography. And now, you are the one. And Bushui with this week's question of the week. What is a homeo box? My opponent, the homeo box I can fight. If you think you can fight, you can email us at gorkhotville.com. You won't win anything, but you'll beat your opponent. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grogs. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grogs, you can email us at grogs at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grogs, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grogs.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music